is the cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. It is 5pm in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Uh, A start to the third quarter, which I think poses some interesting questions. Uh, We are seeing rates falling fairly sharply uh, across the piece. You've got the US five-year down by 24 basis points. The UK two-year is down by 23 points. Stocks are rising. The S&P is up by 1.9%. So the FTSE not faring quite so well. The dollar is down. The pound is up. One point, so we're trading at 1.12 on the cable rate. Uh, we've had the quasi Kwarteng speech. Uh, we've had a U-turn over the weekend uh, from the Conservative Party on the top rate of tax. Uh, and we've also got to talk about Credit Suisse. It's a fairly busy start to the new quarter. Yeah, and it's all related and all different at the same time. So you can make the argument that the UK budget is uh, idiosyncratic. So is Credit Suisse. So is the ISM manufacturing data here in the US. But I think at the heart of it, is massive global central bank tightening and then huge leverage in different parts of the market and things bursting and things getting hurt and then having to recalibrate that. I mean, I think that's why you're seeing, you know, equities rise. Bad news, good news for the equity market. So here's here's the question I think that is increasingly being asked, certainly what I'm hearing, and that is, is the instability we're starting to see in financial markets, the big swings we're starting to see in financial markets, ultimately going to result in the kind of financial instability that forces central mm-hmm. banks to have to desist from what they're doing now, which is tackling inflation. And if that is the case, does inflation stay more elevated for a longer period of time? And if that's the case, what does that mean for financial assets? I would assume that that would be very bad news for bonds. Uh, yes, and you could see exactly that unfold last week with the BOE. So we're going to keep hiking, but we're going to do QE in the long end. I mean, they say they're going to stop October 14th. Will they be able to? (laughs) Will we need a bailout of Credit Suisse? Will mortgage buyers need bailouts? Like these are all these questions are coming up. We're going to try and answer some of these questions, or at least have a decent stab at it uh, over the rest of the hour. We'll start off talking about that quasi Kwarteng speech. We'll take you to Birmingham. We'll get some analysis here in the studio on the economics of all of this. Before we do all that, Charlie Pellet is back. He's been on a boat, he's been on a barge, but he's back in New York. Indeed, lots going on. Do want to begin with Birmingham and that quasi Kwarteng speech. He sought to reassure, uh, reassure jangled nerves in his ruling Conservative Party with a pledge to deliver on the government's economic strategy only hours after making a humiliating U-turn on a plan to cut taxes for top earners. Speaking at the Conservative Party conference today, he said, no more distractions. We have a plan and we need to get on to it. His keynote speech to the Tory faithful came after backtracking on a plan to scrap the 45% rate of income tax in order to head off a growing threat of a party rebellion. Of course, we'll have more on that topic coming up in just a moment right here on The Cable. The utilities regulator Rothschild says the UK faces a, quote, significant risk of gas shortages this winter and could enter an emergency that could see power stations switched off. Vodafone Group is in discussions with three UK owners, CK Hutchinson Holdings, about combining their British mobile businesses, a long-speculated 
tie-up that comes after several other attempts to consolidate European telecommunications. And Deliveroo is opening its first physical grocery outlet in the UK on central London's New Oxford Street in an expansion of its rapid delivery service. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie, we'll catch up in around half an hour. After we've done that and you've given us the headlines, you can give us a quick, a quick sort of soupçon of your of your recent trip. We'll do that in just a moment, because before we get to that, we need to talk about what has just happened in Birmingham and what is going on up there. Charlie talked about the uh, the difficult speech that Kwasi Kwarteng has delivered. Um, we didn't see much of a market reaction, which I think is probably, Alex, a good thing. Um, after all the turbulence we've seen over the last uh, over the last week, uh, but the uh, but the U-turn over the weekend on the 45p tax rates for top earners quite embarrassing. But basically, all the other bits of the mini budget are going to be maintained. This is what the Chancellor had to say a few minutes ago. I know the plan put forward only 10 year, uh, days ago has caused a little turbulence. I get it. I get it. Uh, we are listening and have listened. And now I want to focus on delivering the major parts of our growth package. Because with energy bills skyrocketing, a painful COVID aftermath, war on our continent, a 70-year high tax burden, slowing global growth rates, and glacially slow infrastructure delivery, we couldn't simply do nothing. We can't sit idly by. What Britain needs more than ever is economic growth and a government wholly committed to economic growth. That is why we will forge a new economic deal for Britain, backed by an ironclad commitment to fiscal discipline. More businesses. More businesses, more jobs, higher pay, more money for public services. Because we cannot have a strong NHS without a strong economy. We can't have good schools without a strong economy. We cannot fund our armed forces without a strong economy. So growing our economy should be our central and guiding mission. With this plan, we are aiming for 2.5% annual trend growth. We've done it before and we can do it again. Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, delivering his speech at the opening of the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham a few hours, about an hour ago. Um, joining us there from Birmingham is Bloomberg's James Wilcock uh, to give us some of the political analysis and get a sense of what is happening on the ground. Uh, we've also got here in the studio Bloomberg Economics' David Goodman to give us a sense of the, well, the economics of all of this, which are very challenging right now. Uh, James, let me start with you up in Birmingham. The Chancellor had to deliver an embarrassing U-turn over the weekend, but it looks like the bulk of the, re- bulk of, the rest uh, of his mini-budget stays intact. Is there a belief that further U-turns are coming? How was that speech received at conference? Um, Guy, Alex, lovely to be here. So I was actually outside the conference hall talking to the Alex as they came out. So I can tell you exactly how it was received. They liked it. They thought that some of them told me it, they were proud to admit we were wrong. Some one delegate told me um, we feel like, you know, it's not time yet, but obviously it's the right idea and the party is going in the right direction. So this speech, it didn't tell us much new because like you said this humiliating broadcast round that Kwasi had to do this morning the chance to have to set up multiple times how his flagship policy and his flagship ideology is at odds with the public mood and with his own MPs so to question about whether this is the end 
it's hard to say, but it's certainly a sign that they don't have the strength in the party and in the public mood. They feel they can get this through right now. And what is truly telling is this is on the second day of conference. This is supposed to be their big chance to set out the ideology of the party. And instead, they're packing away one of their flagship policies. So on that point, David, um, we, Quartang talked about how they're gonna, he's going to publish his medium-term fiscal plan, quote, shortly. And I'm wondering if that moves up the November 23rd deadline and or what do we need to see from that? Like, what's the time? What, what, what is the market and what do economists need to see from that to really get grips with this policy? Hey, Alex, um, I mean, I don't think it does. I think that there's that November 23rd publication is, is going to be what's happened. I think Kwarteng said as much in his speech. So that's something to kind of look forward to, I guess, for, for investors. He, he talks a lot, as you hear there, about being the party of fiscal responsibility. Obviously, that's quite a difficult line to push right now when you've had that massive market reaction to to what we saw last week. So I think just in terms of what they'll be looking at, anything that really shows that the they have thought about how they're going to fund these um, fund these tax cuts and other spending measures, uh, something on the other side of the ledger, I suppose, and maybe more detail on how actually they're going to they're get this growth but as today today has shown like we're in across a living crisis they have to see every policy through that prism and you can't be cutting the rates for the richest society in that situation yep. and at the same time you can't be spending spending money on sorry cutting spending on benefits or other things either because that's that that is also going to raise this issue of fairness i think that's going to be a very tricky thing for kwazang to in terms of the u-turn and the impact it's going to have the, the concern obviously is that from a market perspective that that these uh, these tax cuts are unfunded uh, to your point about the need for balancing cuts to come through uh, there's also this idea that they could potentially be inflationary though the propensity to spend for that for that higher echelon probably is is relatively limited so in terms of solving or answering the question the market was asking, how far does it really go? Well, if you look at the actual cash terms of this, it's about two billion. That's about three percent of the of the of the tax cuts he announced last week. Yeah. So, in in that sense, not very much at all. I mean, I think it's obviously a signal that they are listening and they've taken some of the stuff on board. Um, but I think it does show the perils of announcing these kind of policies without any kind of check from the from the watchdog because essentially now now we've got rid of this this move all of this stuff was expected now so in terms of actual policies we're not anywhere that we thought we wouldn't be at this point but the markets are still what 100 basis points higher on guilt than they were that kind of mm-hmm. thing so the damage has been the damage has yeah. been done and no matter what he says now about fiscal responsibility that's still something that he has to deal with i think and he's going to have this credibility problem for quite a long time right so james what it's so interesting because from what you said it seems like there is some kind of unity now and the tories that are there, right? I mean, it doesn't seem to be an open revolt against the chancellor right now. Does that stay? Well, the key thing in the question you just said there is that are there. The key, it's conspicuous that a lot of MPs in their absence haven't shown up. The chair of the Treasury Select Committee, Mel Stride, isn't here. Rishi Sunak isn't here. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson isn't here. So in some ways, this kind of echo chamber of the people who are supportive of the, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister are the ones who are here now. And it is worth saying, these are the people who elected Liz Truss. She didn't go to a vote of the public. She went to a vote of Tory party members. So in some ways, this is kind of a gathering of the party faithful literally the party faithful I mean in terms of the MPs who haven't shown up what they will be watching Alex is a poll out by Comrades 20 minutes ago that puts Labour at 50% Conservatives at 25 double the governing party so in terms of 
what can now be done about that? Is it down to Liz Truss? She speaks, what, on Wednesday? What can she say that is going to deliver a a shift in those polls? Or to, to David's point, from an economic point of view, and we're all kind of watching our mortgages right now and what's going on there, has the damage been done? It's, it's very difficult to say what turns us around. I mean, in politics, you know, a week is a long time and they have at least 18 months until the next election. And these polls can change just that they've changed so much in the past week. I think there is a key need for a lot of these Conservative MPs that I've talked to off the record about, like, to push, like, any kind of supplies their policies show retake that ground of fiscal responsibility but what is fascinating now if you compare it to the Labour Party is there a fu- there's a fight in the UK to be the party of business to be the ones who are backing responsible economic policy and so far it seems to be an even match where David the big obviously the big trickle down is going to be the mortgage market and we're going to talk more in depth about it in just a moment and Guy spent his weekend talking about it I spent my weekend talking about Credit Suisse and financial contagion. But what is the economic risk from the housing market right now in the UK that is going to be a thorn or not in the side of the government? Well, I mean, it's, it could be a massive thorn because part, the Tory party like to paint themselves as the party of homeowners. And they're all, if you, if you look at what's going to happen to everyone's mortgage as a result of some of the market turbulence from before this, but definitely as a result of, of the what followed the mini-budget, people's mortgage rates are going to go higher, their costs are going to go up. Obviously, that's in the cost of living crisis anyway, that's really bad news. And I think one of the things I found quite interesting was that Trust did this on, on Sunday and Kwartang did it a bit today, kind of playing down this market move. I think Kwartang called it a bit of turbulence and the whole laughed at that. And it's you can dismiss these as market moves, but these really matter to people's lives. Like guilt yields, yep. you can dismiss them as something esoteric, but like they feed through into mortgage rates, and that makes a real difference to people. So they have to take that seriously as well, and they have to find some way to, I guess, delink themselves from what's happening in the mortgage rates. Because I think that's a lot of focus group stuff that you, you've been seeing come out since the uh, since the budget has people been basically now holding the Tories responsible for what's happened to their mortgage rates, and that is something that you can't really have if so much of your constituency is people who have homes have mortgages so yeah i mean i think that's a particularly damaging thing that's come out of the last couple of weeks james do you think there's anything that we're going to see out of this conference that is going to change all of this narrative the damage as we've already discussed has been done mortgage rates have gone higher uh we've seen obviously a huge u-turn from this government already they've already eaten up a lot of their credibility what what else what are people talking about there other than this, are there other policies that are gonna they're gonna have an impact here? I mean, this is the hidden stuff, like on everyone's lips. Um, I was talking to conservative delegates um, in the bar last night, um, and they were set, one of them even said to me, "This is, might be the time where we go into opposition and have a rethink." So, in terms of what we can expect, guy, I think it's likely that it's the risks are to the downside, to use like the economic language. It would be like a mess up or some sort of gaff that would possibly mm-hmm. take things further. And like to refer to your other po- earlier points, this shows the rebels and the people who quietly engineered this U-turn that they yeah. can win and they can get sort of things over. So it could only get worse from here on in. James just needs to go back to the bar, basically, and, and, and do some more <laughs> reporting. Uh, guys, thanks a lot. Uh, James Wilcock joining us, as well as Bloomberg's uh, David Goodman. We really appreciate the time. But we're going to dive deeper into the UK housing market and what the hidden risk is, or more obvious risk there is, and what kind of pain people are really going to be facing. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. As Alex said, I spent my weekend talking to people about what is happening with the mortgage market. The question on everybody's lips, have you fixed? If you have fixed, for how long? And at what rate did you ultimately fix at? We've seen uh, turbulence in the property market, the physical market. We've seen transactions being pulled as a result of the turbulence we've seen in the market over the last few days, which ultimately... And while there is a longer term story here, has its roots in that mini budget that the Chancellor delivered. The Chancellor talked about a little turbulence today being caused by what he had said. For many people, it goes much, much, much further than that. And to be honest, we're not seeing a reset following today's speech. We're not seeing a reset following the U-turn that has been delivered. We still don't know whether the Bank of England is going to have to deliver ongoing support. Uh, Ivana Hovenko covers the UK housing market for Bloomberg Intelligence here at Bloomberg and joins us now on the line. Ivana, talk me through the 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 kind of the tectonic shift that we have seen in the housing market. We all know that rates have gone up, but just talk to me and put into context the scale of the moves that we've been seeing. Yes, the rates have absolutely shot up. And we, the rates have been actually, the, the rate expectations as well as the mortgage rates have been accelerated, accelerating in the past few weeks. So even before the budget, we've seen dramatic shift in terms of rate expectations and mortgage rates rising from, uh, so looking at the 90% LTV mortgages from around 1.7 at the start of the year to um, 3.7, 3.9 in August, and right now some banks are offering the two-year fixes on as much as 6.7. Uh, this is this is this is a dramatic repricing in just a matter of days, uh, which will be then will be a shock to the system for a lot of the a lot of buyers who haven't secured a mortgage offer yet. They will actually take a step back and try to reassess what what. Does this transaction make sense anymore? They were maybe trying to play the market, maybe waiting for prices to come down. Yeah. And affordability will be a big issue. So aside from those that may not be able to complete a purchase, etc., how many individuals or how many mortgages are on this variable rate? It's around 20% of the market is on variable rates. Uh, however, in the uh, for the last several years, uh, we've seen around 94% of all the mort- new mortgage lending has been actually on fixed rates. That said, majority of those would have been done on two, maximum five-year fixes. Some people have 10-year fixes, but this is a fa- minority. Are people talking about the fact that we're going to have to see, like we've seen in the energy market, some sort of government support that could change the narrative here? Um, maybe maybe changing affordability tests, maybe uh, changing loan to maturity extension. So you basically don't take out a 25-year mortgage, you take out a 30-year mortgage or whatever it is. Are, are we expecting changes that could stabilise the market if rates have to stay high? Well, this is an interesting point, and I think uh, nothing's off the table, and the 30-year fixes have been surfaced before. That said, in, ter- in, ter- in terms of uh, longer-term mortgages, I think this is an easy lever-, lever to actually pull from the lenders as well as the borrowers, and perhaps going slightly further to ease the affordability issues. But actually, um, I was looking at this data earlier today, and actually um, mortgages running 
the mortgage term running for more than 30 years, so the total, not the fixed, but the total mortgage terms, they actually account already for a third of all the mortgages. Wow. This is incredible. This is a dramatic shift from where we were uh, in the run-up to the global financial crisis. What I'm still trying to un- understand, and this is coming from someone who has a 30-year fixed, is if my variable rate comes up and I literally can't pay it, do I get kicked out of my house? Does the bank own the mortgage? Or does the mortgage or broker need to go get more funding from a bank? Like, does the mortgage broker go belly up? Like, I'm wondering where the stress in the system is going to appear the most. Well, um, it, it depends. I would imagine that mortgages are the last thing to go for a lot of the people. So, especially that a lot of the people actually... Uh, the LTV on average is actually fairly low. Even the first-time buyers have around a quarter. Uh, Their deposits are around 25%. And in general, the people who can afford mortgages are on some of the best earnings in the UK, even first-time buyers. So that's the sad truth and the the unfortunate truth about the poor affordability of UK housing. But but it has a silver lining because these people are actually more able to afford these uh, mortgages, especially as up until uh, August, we've had a stress, we've had stress tests where people are actually stressed for the fact if they could pay those extra three percentage points of their hmm. of interest. So they would just go off uh, their fix if they can't fix for long for anymore. Uh, they will have to face those increased costs, and I would imagine they will be looking for cuts elsewhere before defaulting on the mortgage. Um, What does this mean for UK financial institutions? I would have thought the large banks that are issuing mortgages with big deposit bases are okay. But what about everybody else? Well, I don't cover financial institutions, so it's difficult for me to answer that question. Um, But but is there going to be any issue with, with lenders withdrawing products from markets and just not bringing them back? Is there is is this kind of t- we saw a whole load of mortgage lenders basically withdrawing products? Do we is it just are they going away and resetting and then coming back with new products? Is this just a pause uh, and then we basically go back to where we were but with higher rates, or are we going to see potentially a a, a more difficult labour market? Uh, sorry, labour market, big, more difficult mortgage market after this? Are some lenders not going to come back with the range of products they once did? Um, well, again, from a non-expert, I, yeah. what I, from what I've heard, actually, that a lot of the uh, lenders are coming back with mortgages, however, at lower, at, at, at obviously a yeah. higher rates, mm-hmm. but they are coming back. Um, right. Are there um, going to be as many deals uh, in the market? Probably not. Again, that was the question I was actually asking. Probably, I, in a very, I don't think so. I think it will be. Yes, I think it will be fewer uh, products uh, with borrowers competing for them, and the ones, the lenders with the lowest rate, the mm-hmm. lowest rates will be competing, will be inundated with applications. Messy, 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 messy. I feel like it's just going to be messier before we get real clarity. Um, great analysis. We appreciate it. Awana Hovenko, a Bloomberg intelligence analyst, joining us there on the UK housing market. Um, coming up, you know, if you read Twitter over the weekend, I talked about Credit Suisse with my friends who were worried about a 2008. We'll discuss it. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's get you a quick check on U.S. markets here. So the prevailing theme 
is bad news is good news. The bad news of today was ISM manufacturing came in light, just barely over 50 at 50.9 for September. Prices paid stayed above 51. Uh, new orders, though, rolled over and employment rolled over. Anything below 50 looks like it's going to be a contraction. That's the quote-unquote bad news. The quote-unquote good news is the 2% rally that we're seeing in the equity market uh, for the S&P. You're also seeing a humongous bid into the bond market. you got yields down in the belly in the front end, about 20 basis points. You also had third quarter finally over. Uh, you have a, a very, very, very oversold market, and you have OPEC potentially cutting a lot of oil supply in the market on Wednesday. All of that contributing to the relative optimism uh, within the market as well. That's your snapshot here, and I, I just feel a little skeptical because you have to wonder how long something like this can really last. Let's get some more updates here. It's Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. Here's what's going on. The head of the International Monetary Fund says the trust government's decision to abandon a tax cut for top earners in the UK is, quote, a good decision. This comes days after the plan drew stinging criticism from the global crisis lender. Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva told reporters at an event in Riyadh today the decision the UK has taken to ease the potential pressure on their revenues is a good decision. The European market for Russia's seaborne crude is drying up as sanctions draw nearer and the country's Asian customers aren't picking up the slack like they once were, with just over two months until a European Union ban on seaborne crude imports comes into effect. Shipments to the bloc plus the UK are down by about 60% from where they were before Moscow's troops invaded Ukraine. A hotel chain in the Italian iconic holiday destination of Salento is shutting down due to high energy bills. The Caroli Hotels Group, which owns five hotels in the southern region of Puglia, will suspend activities and will not accept any more reservations. The company's energy bill skyrocketed to about 500,000 euros per month from 100,000 per month a year ago. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. I love that story about the Italian hotel. I feel like that's just the first to fall. But Speaks Most volumes. importantly, welcome back. This was a much anticipated trip to the UK. How was it? it? It was it was it was fantastic. I'm not so sure I would do this particular itinerary again. That mm-hmm. said, spending a week on a narrow boat is an unbelievable experience. The goal was to really take a look at the UK's economic history. The canals built the United Kingdom. Going back to places where the construction was done by sheer muscle, brute force, building the world's tallest navigable aqueduct was absolutely amazing. This is along the canal that goes uh, uh, up to Langoughlin in Wales. Two communities that I went to, absolutely incredible. Uh, This would be Chester in the United Kingdom, Langoughlin in Wales. The crew was skippered by a couple of guys. Neil is the owner. Taff was the guy. And one guy would, uh, uh, one of the guys would uh, cook. The other guy would drive the boat. It was an amazing experience. That said, Why why the route? Why why have you got an issue with the route, Charlie? Uh, because you spend a lot of time in between major areas. You and I, Guy, we had talked in general broad terms about perhaps doing a live conversation from the boat. I couldn't get cell service in that part of Wales. It's remote. There are sheep farms. You see cows walking along the side of the canal. So it's very difficult to get were reliable pubs, cell phone Charlie? service. What's were that? There pubs? Were there pubs, Charlie? Along no, the there were, but we didn't stop off. And that was one of the one of the minor <gasps> issues. Uh, yeah, well, here's why. Because you're on a, you're, you're on a, you know, not a, 
not a strict schedule, but it rained a lot, mm-hmm. and we tended to pull up in very <laughs> rural locations, measured by Wales. miles yeah. to the next bridge, next town, next location. And and mm-hmm. I would suggest that taking a narrowboat holiday is a state of mind rather than a state of destination. Uh, I think we also at some point need to reevaluate the word vacation for for Charlie. Yeah, that's right. Because I've as as you know, HR is going to go ballistic on this one, but I think I invited you in loose general terms to go up to Inverness with me so mm-hmm. that we could go take a look at abandoned oil rigs. Now, my wife has no desire I to do, do that, that whatsoever. You would do, would do that. Guy Johnson wouldn't do that, but you know, who but knows? But I would do that, so, but like, I wouldn't necessarily be like, that's my vacay. I'd be like, let me yeah. take work days for it. All right, but, well, you know. And I'm going to wrap I it up. I have to say, you, you, I grew up, I we went to various places, but I spent a lot of time in a in my grandparents' caravan in North Wales, and the abiding memory I have is the noise of the rain hitting the top of the caravan. So that sounds <laughs> guy, like a very familiar experience. Guy, that and, so resonates with me, because that is exactly what happened. There were nights where the yeah. rain came down. and yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, a lot of great tea, a lot of great companions, and uh, totally glad to have done this trip. And this is why Guy is traumatized and talks about the weather all the time. Charlie, thanks very my much. Pleasure. It's good to have you back. Um, okay, let's get back to the market. So, in the last segment, we are talking about what Guy was talking about all weekend. For me, it was the tw- the panicked text from my friend on Saturday night that is Credit Suisse going to explode and is this like 2008? And I was like, wait, what? And I had to go back and like do some soul searching and do some work on you know supplemental leverage ratios, etc. So let's get a better expert here. John Authors joins me from Bloomberg Opinion. What's Hi. my takeaway from this conversation with my friend? The fact that I'm having it with my friend or the fact that there is a risk with Credit Suisse? Uh, more the former. Uh, the fact that people were as have got as worried as they have been about a bank as systemically important as Credit Suisse tells you that... Uh, tells you that there is real anxiety taking hold again and tells you what... There are various outcomes that people are worried about, but one of them, conceivably, is that the reason the Fed ends up pivoting is because uh, of a financial meltdown, that it becomes a a matter of uh, financial stability rather than anything to do with the economy as such or monetary policy. Uh, And this feeds into that that fear. As far Uh, as I can see... Yeah, sorry, um, continue. Credit Suisse, I, I, it's a long time since I've covered them as a company, don't look as though they're a particularly exciting stock to buy at the moment. I still find it quite hard to imagine that they would be allowed to default. I think a repeat of Lehman as such yep. would be very bad indeed. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that, but I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, It's conceivable that... It needs the kind of help that really compromises monetary policy that that uh, that that creates problems across the rest of the world. That that's that's conceivable. The the lesson that I learned from from the, uh, from my the GFC. Can you oh, hear me? Uh, no, he can't hear you actually. Well, this isn't good. No, it isn't. Um. Okay. Let uh, me let me. I'm, I'm going to do this via Alex. Then. Oh, this but, is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. This is okay. The, 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 my issue during the financial crisis was that I learned that the risk comes from areas that you didn't expect it to be. And hasn't just the UK just proved that that is once again going to be the case? Uh, <laughs> b- basically, John, that the risks uh, that yeah. we are going to experience are ones that we're not expecting. And that the UK really exemplified that last week. Was that about it? I can get rid of it. No, 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 he can okay. hear you now. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Our, our, exactly. our wonderful engineer did come in and the volume for some reason had been turned to zero on my 
Technology is hard, okay? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so there we go. Um, we've, done, we've done a U-turn on the sound. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, I, I mean, I, th- I think it's I think it's by definition almost that that the problems are that are greatest are the problems that you haven't expected because generally. Ex- Generally yep. speaking, if you're worried about something, you do actually do something to prepare for it, and it's not that bad when it happens. Uh, what happened last week with UK pension funds was about as close to a pure black swan as you're going to get. Like nobody was talking about it until I, I think the Bank of England did a moderately good job of keeping the extremity of the situation under wraps until they'd dealt with it. But yeah, that was. A black black swan. People really didn't expect it, and if it had only gone a matter of hours longer, you would have had a you know obviously a very major systemic crisis. Um, I'm not sure you can say um, anything similar about um, Credit Suisse because it's been the, the the whole story of Credit Suisse has been followed that much more closely. Or is my question now? Mm. Okay, so yeah, that was confusing because it was Guy and then I translated and the whole thing. Um, So where where is it going to be? Like I know what the definition of a black (laughs) swan is. Yes. But if I need to calm my friend down and be like, it's not Credit Suisse, this is the area we need to be paying attention to. What is that area? Okay, first of all, yes, you do need to to pay attention to to the hardcore financial area. It's it's places that, uh, if if you ask me, it's, it's structures that haven't been fully tested in previous incidents Mm. on which we are placing a lot. So I'm not predicting that there's going to be a major ETF crash, but if you get some serious problem with ETFs not being able to, you know, with their trading a long way away from net asset value, that could cause a really hideous mess because they're so big, so important at this point, and because people rely on them to the extent that they do. Uh, so that that's one obvious one. The, I guess private equity, um, because, again, mm-hmm. it's very big and it's leveraged. That's what I said. And I, I said private equity is going to be probably the issue, but, you know. I, I mean, in terms of the things that have got big, that haven't big, been big in previous crises that people are really relying on, Private equity is one of them. ETFs is another. Um, though, you know, the, that's that's the way to approach it. I, I, tech stocks are in the in the US have obviously come to Terms. yet another extreme, but but to quite a bit of the froth of, on that has been has been knocked off already. But I think in in general, it's the uh, it's any anything yeah. that hasn't been tested before that people have used a lot of. of unconsciously come to rely on almost by definition would be much more damaging if something went wrong john are we at the point Mm. and should we start considering the possibility that central banks led by the fed will be knocked off course in their fight to reduce inflation by financial instability and if that is the case does that mean that that inflation is not going to come down as much as they would like and by extension how bad would that be for the bond market? Okay, I mean, under this scenario, which is a reasonable scenario, um, I think what you what you see is um, 
a retreat from the kind of aggressive monetary policy policy we've been seeing, uh, which is ultimately some kind of a Faustian bargain that, okay, the financial system is in such a state that we just cannot tighten rates as much as we want to to uh, rein in inflation. So we're just going to have to deal with that problem of all that debt mm -hmm. by inflating it away. And we don't want to do that because that's going to cause a lot of trouble around the world. It means, you know, causes a lot of pain for a lot of people. But it may be the easiest, least painful, least bad way to do it if we discover the financial system is that is that jammed. If it does checkmate, um, a la what happened last week in England, mm -hmm. uh, if it does checkmate any attempt at well, uh, going further on tightening money. Well, just to wrap up, um, is it possible that we can hike rates to fight inflation, but that we're not able to um, shrink our, the Fed balance sheet or the ECB balance sheet or yeah. the BOE's balance sheet? That we can hike rates and then continue some type of QE? That's, that is possible. Uh, what kind of world is that? That's bananas. It's, it is a little. Uh, it's, it, I guess it's a world which where the, the bond market has been intervened in to such an extent and different edifices have been built on a QE-driven yeah. bond fund to the extent that bond market to the extent that you just can't avoid intervening in that market, even if you were also trying to tighten rates well, for the economy as a whole. What, I, what is, that's a bizarre scenario. So it is, just, yes. Like in, th in 45 seconds, what does that mean for equities and what does that mean for bonds? <laughs> uh, if it's if it's an inflation environment, then it's bad for all of the above and you probably buy commodities. If you, if okay. we're talking about the, that, that scenario we just discussed, then yeah. you're, then you, it is not necessarily, it's a different kind of stagflation from 70s stagflation, but I would say it's more of a 70s playbook than anything else. See, it's all about the weather and commodities, Guy. Yeah. A little bit for you, a little bit for <laughs> I me. I knew that. Uh, okay. It's Bananas. always a great pleasure. John, thank you very much <laughs> indeed. You. Sorry about my headset. We, we live in... We, well, it's a, it's a U-turn. We're all doing U-turns at the moment. <laughs> um, it's absolutely fine, apparently, to do a U-turn. Um, not too many of them, um, because that may cause problems. And that's a circle uh, okay. at that point. It is. Exactly. Exactly. 360, not 180. Uh, we're done. John, thank you very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So Tesla stock is down by about 8.5%. It's one of the reasons why the Nasdaq is actually underperforming, even though it's up, it's underperforming the S&P and the Dow. Part of it is because their quarterly deliveries disappointed. Let's get the why. Let's get the details. Ed Ludlow uh, joins me in the studio now. Ed, it's a demand or it's a supply problem? Which was it? A supply problem, if Tesla's to be believed. You know, they delivered almost 344,000 vehicles. The street was looking, you know, for 358,000 based on the, the estimates compiled by Bloomberg. And what Tesla said is in their traditional scramble to get the cars out of factories and to customers, this quarter of all quarters, they, they basically got caught with lots of vehicles in transit. And so you can't register or record a vehicle as being delivered if it's not delivered. You know, it's it's been ordered by the customer, but it's somewhere on its way to them. And, and they were kind of 
more communicative than normal in explaining that point. Are we going to see a lot of deliveries next quarter then? I think, you know, the the kind of cynical members on the street would say, if we are going to believe Tesla that this is not a demand issue, in other words, that they are cars destined for actual customers, they all pointed to how important the December quarter is. And, you know, the, the as with all auto manufacturers, these deliveries kind of front run earnings, which are later this month, where we hope to get some kind of more granular detail on what those sort of logistics problems were. But, you know, there are other data points I point to, Guy. You know, we discussed this on TV earlier. They built a lot more vehicles in the quarter. They delivered 94% of what they built. And that's a very low number for Tesla historically. So I thought that all the supply chain issues, logistic issues were starting to clear up. Where then are the hurdles that we still need to have or the hurdles specifically related to Tesla? Yeah, we we use the phrase supply chain problems or issues as a pretty broad brush comment, right? But I think in Tesla's case, this is the issue of moving a finished good from A to B freight prices have come mm. down you know guy was at that fulfillment center the nestle one i remember that day i was at the port of los angeles where the rates to move things were just astonishingly high they've come down but what musk said in, in twitter over the weekend is they want to avoid this situation where they're having to pay over the nose to expedite something because of this traditional yeah. mad scramble they have at the end of every quarter. So it's not that parts are missing. The factories are humming all around the world. In fact, that's part of the problem. They're more evenly mm. producing um, vehicles across their four factories. It's just that when they come to deliver them in that last week of the quarter, the carriers are turning around and saying, well, you have to pay a nice premium to us. And those costs are unpalatably high for a company like Tesla that does do actually move? move to protect is margins. It, is, it, is this just trucks? Is that what we're talking about here? It, trucks. And well, this is why I say more more granularity and detail. I don't know if you guys remember, I spoke to Amazon's SVP of devices and services, Dave Limp, last week, and one comment really jumped out at me. They are not having a problem with semiconductors or parts for their devices. They're upset about ocean freight rates, moving things by boat, and much of their manufacturing happens in China and Vietnam. Overall, those rates have come down, but it's notable to hear a company like Amazon say that. We didn't get that level of data from from Tesla, other than, you know, these um, are geographical problems, right? Berlin's coming online, Guy, nearer to where you are. Traditionally, if you were in the UK and you ordered a Model 3, it probably would come from Fremont, California. That Mm. makes no sense now. It's more likely to come from Germany. And as they localize Mm. those deliveries, they're going through teething problems. Well, that's actually a really good way of putting it. it. So in the regions where they're doing the stuff, they're okay. It's, yes. just, it's just moving the things out of those places that's the problem. Yeah, and this is, you know, to be fair to Musk and Tesla, they're a logical company. They always said, why build a vehicle in America that's destined for Europe? Just build it in Europe right. for the Europeans. Same with China. Um, but that that's a new process. This is a new phenomenon for them. And they are working out the the, the, the cost of moving something from A to B. And they're, they're certainly a, contra- a company that value long-term contracts. So you'd assume that they're kind of getting those in place too. If you electrify a hog, a Harley Davidson, <laughs> yes, um, I knew I knew he was going to go here at this point. Go ahead. Okay, you, you get a company called Livewire. Yeah. Um, why such excitement today around Livewire? Yeah, look, I, I, they, you and I have discussed this. There's always f- what I call froth around a, a company that trades that's just gone public via a SPAC as opposed to a traditional IPO. There's a strategic element as well that for. Harley Davidson and for 
uh, other names outside of motorcycles, they're hedging, they're protecting themselves by spinning out or separating a specific unit. Look at what Volvo did, for example, in its partnerships with Geely and with Polestar and the strategy that they did while also developing in-house. And, you know, now what we have is a standalone battery electric motorcycle name. And apparently there is a market mm -hmm. for that. And investors are excited to be able to buy a specific piece of that market. Up 17%. To be fair, it's a strong tape today also. Um, what kind... Can we get nerdy for a moment? How hard is it to build an electric motorbike versus an electric car? Like, where are the similarities and where are the differences that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, I think when you develop or you vertically integrate your production of electric vehicle, one of the key parts is where are you going to build your electric motor and where are you going to build the battery pack? Other various people have different ways of doing that. Tesla, for example, builds a lot of the motors and battery packs in Nevada and then moves them to the, fa the plants elsewhere in the country for kind of final assembly. Uh, it is tricky because you have to establish a supply chain for that specific part. But if you can localize and vertically integrate, your margins are often better because you're just focused on building one proprietary in-house part versus molding together many off-the-shelf or legacy combustion engine products. And there are often fewer parts in the electric motor-based system if you strip out the telematics yep. and the, the electronics. So that's the answer. <laughs> I, I do remember having a conversation with a guy called Pieter Blanche, who who used to be the chief of design for Ducati in Bologna. And one of the interesting kind of things he was talking about is the fact that you can electrify both wheels. You can you can put motors in both wheels. And one of the big problems with bikes is that you get, you hit a white line, for instance, in the wet, you get a lot of instability in the bike because the front wheel's not powered, the back wheel is. It's going to be interesting to see whether or not ultimately you end up with, quote-unquote, safer, easier-to-ride motorbikes once they're electric. Mm -hmm. And presumably the, the the weight is lower as well in them. So You just want to talk about how cool things think, you know about I wheels. I think Guy's suggesting that it's time for him to ride a motorcycle. Is I, what's I'm really, going on I here. Believe you me, I'm, I, am, I am really not. But I, I'd be curious to see. I just want, I'm curious about the physics of it all and how it, how, how it works if you start powering both of those. Believe you me, me in leathers, I think I've passed that point in my life. Ed, He's thank you very much indeed for everybody's benefit. <laughs> this is Bloomberg.